Let's start with this one. This will be a good, uh, a simple, simple question. We'll start with the easy one first. Uh, is it good to go to seminary if I'm not sure I, if I will become a full-time pastor? We'll go ahead and go to Stephen on that one first. What do you think, Stephen? I think that's okay. Um, I think it's a really important question to ask. Um, and uh, maybe I'd even go back further and really consider what it is you believe God's calling you to in the first place. Because um, seminary, at least nowadays, is not, is not just designed for full-time pastors. Um, you, can, you can go to seminary for many things. You can go to seminary now to be a Bible translator. Um, you can go to seminary now to, uh, for missions. Uh, you can go to seminary if you want to maybe be a seminary teacher. Um, and many other things you can do in seminary. So really trying to narrow down what it is that you believe God's calling you to do and what your desires are and uh, what your gifts are. And I think that helps you determine more so what your calling is. Um, but I, if you really are not interested in full-time Christian ministry in some form or fashion, then I would maybe discourage you from going to seminary um, because seminary is kind of like boot camp. So in a sense, it'd be like, you know, do you recommend I go to boot camp? I'm not sure if I want to be in the military, though, or I'm not sure if I want to be a soldier. So I would say it's comparable to that. Um, I'm not saying it's sinful or evil to go to seminary. By all means, you'd be edified by it, but it is a big, a very big commitment um, that you should not take lightly. So that would be the one thing I would want to emphasize is the, the commitment aspect of it. I agree. You want to add anything? Well, it's the same thing. Is this, is this working? No. <laughs> the green light's on. Hello? Okay. Yeah, um, I agree with him 100%. If you, um, if you know that you want to be a pastor or a missionary or something along those lines, full-time service, then, I, I, then sir, yes, I 100% recommend seminary. However, if you don't know that and you're on the fence and you're staying on the fence about it, it's not wrong to go to seminary. Certainly not wrong. You can learn the Bible. What's wrong with that? However, especially with children, it is a huge, huge, huge commitment of time. It's total sacrifice. It's a lot of work over years. The, if, you go, if you went, well, back, at least to be, it used to be, if you go full-time seminary, that's three years straight. But really nobody does it in three years, very few people. It's usually four or five years to go or more. So it's a whole, it's a huge commitment and a lot of studying, a lot of time. You've got to balance with your family. So I personally would go another route. If I didn't know, I was on the fence about it all the time, I would stay home and, and study another way. There's courses online that are free, by the way, or uh, other methods that you can find to study. Or just take some courses online. You can do that. That's what I think. I think uh, just to kind of throw something out there, I do know that in our culture and our society that people are having a hard time finding out like, what they want to do and what they want to do for their life. So if you're younger, maybe you have a little bit more freedom to to take some classes, maybe one or two, and not necessarily go all in and, and figure out. And, but I think mainly throwing yourself into church will help you to determine whether or not this is something that you desire to do. And then seminary is definitely something you ought to consider. So that's good, guys. I think we got that. Everybody okay with that? All right, let's move on. Here we go. We dive into the deep end. Everybody get your Bibles. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Corinthians. Here's the question. We say culturally, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. You know, we say culturally that the head covering 
Scripture contextually applies to the church of Corinth at that time. Or at least that's what is the take. But the very next section in the chapter talks about the Lord's Supper, and we apply that without any cultural context regarding Corinth. Why is it that we say one is cultural and the other isn't? So who wants to go first? Um, I'll, say, I'll at least go first to, to uh, address Frame what, the what, question. what the question is. Yeah. Um, and the question is, assuming a couple things, it's assuming that uh, there is nothing culturally going on in the discussion of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. But there is something culturally happening there that's being addressed. And, uh, and the next thing I would say is it's a very good question because we do, we do need to avoid saying, well, I like this part of the Bible and I don't like this part. And let me figure out a cultural explanation to get rid of this idea so I don't have to worry about it. And I like this over here, so I'll keep it. So we, that is a very good question in that sense. So we need to be very careful with our hermeneutic or how we approach understanding the Bible. Um, but I would want to say about that question is Paul brings up the Lord's Supper because something culturally is happening in the church, the divisions and the uh, people going without the other um, and the disunity that might have been happening there in the Corinthian church. Um, and this, so this is not the institution of the Lord's Supper. Christ had already done that um, in the gospel records. Um, so now it's being brought up for a cultural or a, or a contextual reason. That's maybe a way to frame the question. So in other words, uh, the Lord's Supper was being abused because of contextual problems in the church. Right. And so he does address those, those situations in their context. So it is similar, right? Okay, so why then, to follow up, why then uh, should we not, why, why not wear head coverings? Why shouldn't all the ladies in the room be wearing head coverings then? Uh, my understanding of this passage, which I'm rusty on, is that uh, the women in the first century Roman Empire, um, it was a custom to wear a head covering to show that you were married, a sign that you were married, and if you didn't wear it, you were saying, I'm single and available. And you're dishonoring your husband by doing that. There's also the, on the opposite end, in 1 Corinthians 11, the early verses, says a uh, man shouldn't pray with his head covered, uh, maybe verse 4. Um, yeah. And uh, my understanding of that is there was also a custom back in the first century Rome, the Roman Empire, that men would sometimes wear their, you know, the Roman togas. They would wear that over their head to pray to an a, a idol, a false deity. And in a false religion. And so one take on this is that Paul was saying, don't do that because that has to do with, you know, a, a bad custom, okay? But the big thing here in this whole chapter, which Mike was, will, tell, will tell you also, is that two things, 1 Corinthians 11. First of all, this is not a passing cultural incident that just, you know, is only affecting Corinth. This is grounded in Genesis, this whole chapter, because it's about authority of a man over a woman in the home and, and, and the authority over the husband over, over the wife in the home. And it goes like in, in verse uh, 8, man does not originate from woman, woman from man. And it goes into man was not created for woman's sake, woman for the man's sake. So we're going back to Genesis now. So this is not a passing cultural incident only. This is grounded in the creation account, Genesis 1 and 2, and how God established uh, authority in the home for the man back then. And even in the Lord's Supper at the end of the chapter, 
This isn't, you know, Corinth, you know, Corinth is not a great church. Not exactly the shining star of Christendom, okay? So they had all kinds of problems, and, uh, and so he's always addressing all these problems that come up, and, and the Lord's Supper is, is grounded back in the earlier days, too, because that was given to the apostles in the Gospels, like Luke 22, you know, 30 years before that, I guess. And so that is also grounded in the past, all these things. And then now you have this cultural things taking place in Corinth. Well, he's just referring back to, look, this all is established already. You guys are messing things up, you know, basically. Okay. So along those lines, it is grounded in creation. It is grounded in the order that God has established. So let's look at the passage. Let's read down 1 Corinthians 11 to down through 16. Here we go. You ready? Uh, now I commend you become, because you remember me and everything and maintain the tradition even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesy, prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for a woman, but woman for man, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a man ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Boy, that's fun, isn't it? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. All right, so let's just make a couple of observations real quick. What is it talking about? Woman and man. It's talking about roles, right? Man and woman, husband and wife, and it's talking about authority. Everybody's in agreement with this, right? Who's the authority in the household? Everybody sees this. This is very clear. All right. So what is the expression in that culture of that at that time of these roles of authority? What is the way that they expressed it in their culture at that time, those creation roles? What, are, what is it? Dress. Dress. Your hair length and whether you put something on your head. Right? That's what they're saying. That is an expression of that creation established order, right? Is, just, just real simple, is head coverings an expression of the creation order today? No. But is the role still the same? Yes. So, all I would say is, is that if something in our culture expresses those roles, then we need to stay Consistent with that. And do the things that show that creation-mandated order. And I gave an example to the guys I was laughing just a little while ago. If one of the guys comes in with a dress, 
we are going to get on to them. We're going to confront them because it's going to mix up the roles that God has created and established. Yes, we all in yes. agreement? Okay, so it's really skinny, not as confusing, jeans huh? Skinny jeans, too. Skin. Thank you we, for that. we debated this a little bit, the skinny jeans thing. And, and the reality is, as culture goes along, we admit that some things as they go along in time are not synonymous with roles and distinctions. So they kind of change. So, for lack of a better term, 40, 50, 60 years ago, women, you ladies in jeans, I am very upset with you. But today... We can't say that, correct? Because that's not an identity necessarily of a woman or a man. But if you wear a dress, by the way, we're not going to say, you, you're just too a legalist. We're not going to do that either, okay? It's good, but we understand that as time goes along, culture does distrib or demonstrate those roles differently. And so we need to be consistent to point the roles and show the roles of what the scriptures say. Any follow-up questions to that? Yes, ma'am. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, so is the, everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you what MacArthur said because <laughs> I looked it up before I came um, because I was going down through it. He says that the angels would be uh, shamed or disgraced by looking and seeing us change those roles. They're submissive beings to God. They're following their role. And if they see church members not keeping their roles and them trying to usurp authorities, it's disgraceful to the angels that are holy that look on us and keep their roles. They're not trying to usurp their authority. And we, they would look at us, holy angels would look at us and say, why are these people doing this? Why are they changing and reversing roles when they shouldn't be? I, that's what his take is. That's not, I, I think that sounds good, but I haven't done an exegesis of it. All right, any other questions? All right, third question. Why aren't... 3rd Corinthians and 4th Corinthians considered inspired by God. Does anybody know where 3rd Corinthians and 4th Corinthians are? It's after 2nd Corinthians, right? Yeah. It's actually 3rd and 4th Corinthians are not 3rd and 4th Corinthians, right? It would be... Yeah, there's a, actually a, a, a pseudo... There's a uh, false writing called 2nd Corinthians. It's totally in the middle of the 2nd century it was written. I'm sorry, 3rd Corinthians. Really? Yeah. There is such a book, but then the second and the third and fourth Corinthians lost letters. Lost letters. Lost. Do you want to answer this? No, go. You're doing great. They're lost letters, therefore, uh, you know, God inspired his word. So he intends for his inspired word to get out there to believers and everybody. And if letters are lost, by the way, Paul, thank you, Jimmy, for that, by the way. Uh, Paul wrote probably many letters to different people. They're not all inspired. So what was inspired? made it into the canon, and what was not, God didn't plan on being there anyway. Might have been a nice letter. If I got a letter from Paul, I'd be, I'd save it, you know, <laughs> but not inspired, you know. So, we're referring to the, the letters that Paul refers to, though. 
in the third and fourth, I think that's what they're talking about yeah. here. Yeah, is like, that there were two other letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, but he references them in Second Corinthians. And the point is, is that are those part of the Bible? And the answer is no. Are they inspired documents? The answer is no. Was there truth in them? Yeah, probably. The Apostle Paul was speaking. Was there maybe even the gospel in them? Yes, probably. But are they a part of the canon of the Bible, the, the scripture that God wants us to have that's described as all scripture inspired by God? All scripture is inspired by God. Is it part of that scripture? And the answer is no. And because if he did, he would have kept it. He would have made sure that the church had it. Does everybody understand? Do you add anything? Yeah, I'll just add that, uh, you know, it's a broader question of New Testament correspondence, things that have been happening among the uh, disciples and among the apostles in the first century. Why isn't, why isn't all of it included in Scripture? And uh, the, the, the final answer, obviously, is that everything God intended to be in Scripture is in Scripture. <clears throat> and I think that's our final, <clears throat> that's our final answer to that question. Um, and actually, it's interesting because... Uh, Richard Gaffin, he was a teacher from, I think, Westminster. He came down to Tampa and did a, uh, an evening session on, on inspiration, and he kept saying the same point. Everything God intended to be in Scripture, he put in Scripture. Um, regardless, that's what he wanted to be in there. He put it in there. That's, a, that's our view of the divine sovereignty and, God and divine, divine providence. Um, and then, actually, I asked a question, because people were asking questions at the end. I asked a question about, about like proto, 1 Corinthians, or things that are written maybe before, 1 Corinthians by Paul to the Corinthians. And he looked at me and he said, everything that God intended to be in Scripture is in Scripture. I was like, okay, <laughs> I get it. But I think that, that is the final answer. Is that, that's what's in there. So is there any value if we find this new writing of Proto-Corinthians or the Maccabees of the Apocrypha? Uh, 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 is there any value in those? I would say there definitely could be linguistic value. Uh, maybe see if we could if it was verified that it was Paul. Um, it might help us see how we use words. Maybe I'll, things that when we do word studies, we're trying to figure out what do you mean by this word Paul, and then maybe you have something to corroborate. That could be helpful, and maybe historical corroboration. That's all possible. Um, but when it comes to inspiration, and when it comes to everything we need for life and godliness, we have everything right here. So in other words, there might be historical linguistic. But it would not be because it was inspired. And it, it may be spiritually edifying things, but, but nothing that, we're not deficient in any way. Yeah. It would be like reading a, a, a missionary's explanation of what happened and how he shared the gospel with somebody. We'd go, wow, God worked there. That's good, but it's not necessarily a part of the, the canon. Could you add anything? Yeah, I agree. Amen. Anybody have any questions on that? Do you want to follow up? Okay, here we go. Who determined what was inspired and what wasn't inspired? Who determined... Go ahead, say it again. Go, a statement? Yeah, your statement. Oh, yeah, everything God, everything God <laughs> intended to be in Scripture, he put in Scripture. Yeah, it answers that question too, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it's the same answer. God kept his word. He gave us his word. And Mark and I were talking a little bit about this beforehand. 
how do we know whether something is in the Bible? How do we know that they got it right? How do we know? Um, there's uh, the, the key word in canon is recognized. Keep the word recognized in your mind because that is the, that is the word. Um, there was no counsel. Now, there's, now, this guy, Dan Brown, who's always writing crazy stuff. What is that book called? Uh, da, Vinci da Vinci Code. Dan Brown's always saying things like, uh, uh, the Council of Constantinople decided the canon of the New Testament. The Council of Nicaea determined it. The Council of Jamnia determined the Old Testament canon books. What was going to, the canon is the books that are in the Bible is what that word means, basically. Anyway, um, but there were, none of these councils determined anything like that. None of the councils determined, oh, here's, here's a group of guys getting together, you know, the church fathers in the third century or whatever, saying, these, we have declared these books to be, you know, authoritative scripture. None, that's not what happened. The scripture is self-authenticating, which Mike said this morning. It, is, it authenticates itself and verifies itself and shows itself. So the scripture rose to the top, and you, know, you could say, and, and it showed itself to be scripture through the years. So when Jesus comes along in, the, in his time, he's, he speaks of the Old Testament as being, you know, inspired of God, basically, and he quotes the Old Testament and says that passage about from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament. I can't remember where it is exactly. Luke 24. What's, yeah, what's that? I think it's Luke 24. Yeah, maybe Luke 24. But that, there's also Luke 24, but there's another passage that talks about from the, to the death of Ze Zechariah, it's, oh. it, including the whole canon of the Old Testament. So Jesus accepted it. That's good enough for me, number one. Somebody didn't sit back down in the Old Testament days and say, hey, this is the canon. Everybody knew what the canon was. They recognized it. And, uh, and then New Testament was written. They recognized it. It, came, it. it rose to the top. It was clearly different from other books, obviously different from uh, man-made writings. And, nobody, and then uh, nobody argued. I mean, there was, there was some debate about certain books, by the way. But that, that you know, eventually rose to the top as Scripture, those books like James. And uh, there was no issue with that, ultimately. Uh, by the way, if you want a good site, a website on this, michaeljkruger.com. Uh, Kruger's K-R-U-G-E-R, michaeljkruger.com has got a great thing on 10 points every Christian should know about New Testament canon. That's really good. And Michael J. Kruger is an expert on that subject. So, Yeah, and just, just to really just reiterate what you said, Jesus, Jesus confirmed 78% of, of the Bible. So in other words, he showed that everything from Moses to the prophets was canonical, uh, was in the canon. And then, obviously, the New Testament was written after his, his death, and that was received by the church um, as authentic, but <clears throat> if you did 66 books, 78% of them by Jesus' day were confirmed by Jesus himself. So I think that's a very important point to make with this issue. Yeah. And then John chapter 10, Jesus says this, uh, he says, verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The church has known the voice of God through the scriptures from the very beginning. The church has said, yep, that's God's voice because we have hearts that have been changed and we identify it. It's obvious that this is what God has said. So the church has validated it because it's God's worked in their heart and they hear it, they know it, they know it's true. And at the same time, even the early church said no to the Apocrypha and that it was not part of the canon and it was not these things, along with the Didache and 
all these other documents that are out there. Okay? So the church never said that's the voice of the shepherd. And all the uh, New Testament writings were written in the first century, not the second century. Yeah. So by, by the way, uh, uh, all the new documents that come are the new people that get new revelation, like a Sarah Young or something like that that comes out with the, her understanding from God and says that God told her this or that or whatever. Uh, the church is not verifying that. <laughs> the church is saying, no, that contradicts Scripture, and it's not. So, sadly, a lot of people have bought into lies, but, yeah. Sorry, but, uh, even Bart Ehrman, who's, uh, uh, who Bart Ehrman was studying for the ministry or something at one time, but he went astray, became an apostate, and now he's in the University of North Carolina that, and trying to debate, you know, he's trying to de uh, debate Christians on their view of the Scripture. Even Bart Ehrman said that the scripture was not, you know, canonized in some meeting somewhere that guys had in a council. It was, uh, it was widespread consensus, he said, that people, Christians recognize this as a scripture. Even he said it. He's an unbeliever. Yeah, and there's another thing to put in. I've, I hear several people, I've heard several people in the past year say, well, Constantine kind of strong-armed everyone into accepting uh, the canon that we have now. And that's just, <clears throat> that's just not how it went whatsoever. That's not even close. Right. The church is always known. Yeah, Wendell. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's writings that were breathed out by God through his men. Yes. I, I guess it's a short-term definition. Yeah, a very short definition of what Scripture is. All Scripture is God-breathed. So, yeah, it's a short. Again, it's somewhat like that we talked about faith. The definition of faith is in Hebrews, uh, you know, 11 only. And the answer is, no, it's not just that, but, yeah, it's a short firm, short definition. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be obvious. Yep. Yeah, they were. They didn't wait around to be authoritative. They were authoritative by nature. You know, and Bible readers can tell when they read the Scripture. This is a book that has a character unlike any other book ever written. You read other books, there's issues. You know, but.
but the Bible calls us out on our sin. Who, what book does this, you know? Just lay, it, nail, it nails us again and again and again, you know? It tells it like it is. So. I was telling the guys today, one of the things that gives me, uh, it encourages me in, com in comparison to any other religious book is, is that when you're reading, we're reading through Genesis right now in our Bible reading time, that all the heroes, you see all their warts. You see all their mess-ups, all their fail failures, like a Jacob. I mean, he is, he is truly his namesake. And if you were to write a book, if you were to write a book to kind of sell, you would probably, they would write it as Jacob was this great guy. But God doesn't. He exposes every human in the book, which kind of gives a, a great validation to the book itself. So it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture. All right. Can I say one more thing? About yeah, that? yeah. Just in terms of an apologetics context, when you're talking to people about this, is most people when, who are not familiar with Christianity or, or, or salvation, they want you to prove from everywhere possible outside of Scripture that Scripture is true. But the best proof of Scripture is what Mike was mentioning this morning is in self-authentication because it is by nature an authoritative book, and it does speak for itself. So it is its own best witness uh, to what it is. Because it's powerful. And if there's nothing outside of Scripture, who validates it? Yeah. You can't go to some unsaved person that wrote this, whatever you wrote, it can never validate Scripture. Right. Well, a lot of people will automatically, you can come up with something. Somebody's going to deny something. And if, you, if you're basing it on people outside of Scripture, you could fall into a problem. But along those lines, and I'm not a big guy on evidences, but there are so many manuscripts of the early of the early Bible that have been Greek New Testament or Greek documents. I think it's fourteen thousand. I've heard all kinds of different numbers um, that are overwhelming that we can know that what we have is true. Which brings us to a very hard question. Somebody sent in about the end of Mark. So who wants to... I've got to go. <laughs> the end of Mark is really uh, sticky. Somebody, Everybody read, turn over to the end of the Mark real quick. The end of Mark, Mark 16. It's turned into textual criticism, mate. Really. Yeah, it is. It, it, it could be... It could be uh, this is this is a very difficult question, and, and to be perfectly honest, again, I will I will defer to uh, uh, MacArthur's sermon on this. I thought it was pretty good. Um, not that it's perfect, but you know he's not inspired. But I he, I think he gives a good defense. Um, if you look in your Bible, uh, who has ESV? Raise your hand. Okay, will you read for me verse twelve? You have ESV? Yeah. Am I missing something? Is it a new publisher? Does every ESV have that? There's, it was revised in 2011. So. Wow. Is it included in verse 12? Okay, look at verse 9. Is there a little parentheses there? Huh? Is nine included? But it has little com, uh, little parentheses. 
Does anybody not have in your Bible after nine? Nobody? Maybe some of the endings. Okay. Long story short, here's the, here's the deal. Some of the older manuscripts, some of the older, the, the, the manuscripts closer to the original writings did not have from 9 on. Verse 9 on. Correct? Yeah. So they put in these little parentheses. What's your parentheses say if you look in the middle of your margin? Right. So the question is, is, is this really in the canon of Scripture? That's the question. And the answer to it is, my personal take from my study of it at this time is I don't think it is. It wasn't in the original manuscripts. Okay? But as time went along, it got added. Okay? We can argue this till we're blue in the face. Some of us might here disagree. Even here on the panel, I don't know. Do, we, do you think they're there or not? I'm still, I'm still wrestling with the whole issue. Okay, you're still wrestling? I'm still working on it, too. I've been working on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, again, I'm not going to be dogmatic and say, but here's the deal. What was God, God kept? And everything that was in the original manuscripts is God's word. If it wasn't in the original manuscripts, then it's not God's word. Real simple. And there are some of these in Scripture, in your Bibles. Usually they're marked with little parentheses. It's not going to change any doctrine. It's not going to change any of those things. None of your faith is going to be tested whether or not you disagree with whether 9 to the end is in your Bible or not. Okay? You want to add? Yeah, I was going to say, um, it's just a fact you have, to, you have to wrestle with, that it's not in the best, earliest... Uh, manuscripts that we deal with. Um, there are thousands of manuscripts. Some are complete. Many, many, many are, are incomplete, they're, which means there are little fragments of the New Testament, things like that. But you, just have to, you have to wrestle with the fact that this is not found in the earliest, best ones that we have. Um, so we have to wrestle with that. But at the same time, you do look at the content and you say, okay, is there anything here that is uh, inconsistent with the rest of Scripture? And whenever I see it, I say, no. Um, you have someone dealing with uh, a snake and not getting hurt. Does that ever happen in the New Testament? Yeah. Paul. On the island of Malta, he gets bit as he's picking up firewood and shakes it off into the fire. So these kind of things did happen. They're not normative for believers today because I'd say some of these are put in the category of some of the uh, spiritual gifts that the Spirit used to establish his church in the first century. Um, but when in, terms of, in terms of content, um, I don't think we need to get into a big fuss about, about the Indica Mark. Yeah, so we need to get, we need to really study it more, obviously. Yeah, that's why Mark's going to be the last gospel I preach. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Gospel. I'm sorry, Mark. <laughs> Maybe I'll let you do it. <laughs> I'll let you do the last chapter. <laughs> no, no. This is, I mean, these are hard things. Let's just be honest. There are some difficulties that. We have to, but we do know that the original manuscripts are what? God breathed. They're perfect. And some of these that have some earlier manuscripts that didn't have this. Another one is John 8. This being a, the, the lady, the 
one caught in adultery. You know, they ask the question about who's going to cast the first stone. You know, Jesus asked that question. If you look at the context, it does appear that that might not fit in John 8. If you look at, you read the whole thing, it might not fit in that spot. However, it's in other manuscripts in different places and other gospels. So do I think that they, that is uh, God-breathed scripture? I personally think it's God-breathed scripture. I'm just not positive it was in that spot, if that makes sense. Okay? None of it contradicts, again, anything. It affirms the truth. And scripture. just to clarify, some people have thought, thought a lot about this in this room. Others have not. So to clarify one thing, we don't have the autographs, which means we don't have the one, we don't have the papers that Paul sat down and wrote with his own hand. We have opographs, so things that were copied from those. And so that's why we need to do our research and be looking at these things. So the natural question back to you, just for the person that might be a, that's wrestling here, how do we know that the that what we have is what the autograph said. Go ahead. Right, and that's, we have many, many manuscripts um, that we have to study. Um, and, and so there's an abundance of these things. And now, fortunately, the scholars who are, have been the curators of these uh, manuscripts, um, they've put a lot of them online. So you can even go online and you can look at these things, things that are um, very, very old, things that are from the third century. Um, things that are from the 4th century, things that are from the 5th century. So we're dealing with very old manuscripts and very many of them, too, to corroborate with each other and to see what these words are. In comparison, uh, Odyssey and the Iliad, I think there's like a very small amount. Yeah, there's only like 600. Used to be 600. I think that's still the number. Manuscripts of the, of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, from... What, what what year was that written? Whenever it was before BC, so it's uh, Serbian. That's and there those are all a lot of those are late copies, much years later. To whereas there's definitely I think uh, okay there's 5,700 or so Greek manuscripts per se, and then there's all kinds of uh, church. If you take the, the quotes from the church fathers of the new quotes on the New Testament, you can literally put together a New Testament outside of 11 verses. There's so much evidence of, it's ridiculous amount of evidence for the New Testament uh, manuscripts. It's insane. It, nothing comes close to it in, in, in ancient history. Nothing at all can come close to it. You're not going to hear that on, secular people aren't going to tell you this information. So we can know that what we have is true. And it's what we, what was the original autographs. Yeah. Yeah, what, what people pick on is the Bible, yeah. not Homer's Iliad. Yeah. So it's, yeah, right. Yet they take those documents as being what we, they were. They won't do that with Scripture, but that is because of the heart of man. The heart of man does not want to submit to the Word of God and embrace the Word of God, so it's always going to come up with a way to 
get away from it. Yeah, Daniel Wallace is a Greek scholar, and I think he's leading textual. There's, there's a subject called textual criticism, okay, which is very complicated. And they look at all the Greek manuscripts, all the Hebrew manuscripts. That's what they spend their lives doing, studying all this stuff. And I think guy, Daniel Wallace has a, a, a website called Center for Textual Criticism Online. Center for New Testament Textual Criticism. Yeah, you can look that up, Daniel Wallace. And he's got all kinds of manuscripts and all kinds of interesting stuff on there. But it's, it gets complicated, too. It's, just, it's like a science. It's what these guys do for a living, you know. So. And yeah. sorry, one more thing. Most of the differences you're dealing with are not paragraphs. 99% yeah. yeah. of the differences you're dealing with, like, is this, should, should it be the noun or the pronoun? Like, is it I do all things through Christ who strengthens me, or is it I do all things through him who strengthens me? But neither of those conflict. They both are referring to Christ. But most of the differences are going to be things like that. Yeah, Daniel Wallace pointed out that most of the differences are just a spelling difference, which, by the way, in the first century, there were spelling differences. They didn't have an English alphabet, or an alphabet, rather, always like John. They didn't necessarily have a, an established way of spelling everything. So that's another part of this. So you think about that. For us, we always, we, well, we try to spell words right, and then you come along and we come up with the texting and stuff that's happened now, and people spell words different, and it's even assumed to be different, and that's how you spell it. You know, how many of you have gotten the letter U for a text? Well, that's a misspelling. They should have spelled it Y-O-U, right? But we do it, and they didn't, right? All right, so th that happened back then, too. All right, so let's go on to the, the eschatology question, because this is really a good one. Uh, my question is, what is the tribulation and who goes through it? <laughs> Mike, what do you think about this? <laughs> no. What do you think? You're the eschatology guy. Yeah, yeah. All right, turn over to Revelation chapter 3. All right, short answer for this. We have to ask the question, what is the tribulation? The word tribulation is used throughout the Bible. Um, or throughout the New Testament for things like just trials, too. So context determines whether it's talking about the tribulation as in the tribulation of the seven-year period or whether it's talking about a trial. Because in Romans 5, it talks about tribulations. Same word. That's obviously not talking about the tribulation of the period of time that's seven years. Okay? So who goes through it? Well, in, in Revelation 3... Jesus is talking to the church in Philadelphia, and he's talking to them about a trial that's coming upon the earth. And he says, where am I? Verse 10. Because you have kept my word. Did I get it right? Yeah. Yes. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's some kind of trial that's coming, and the church should be looking for this trial, but he says they're going to be kept from it, okay? Now, the way I read Scripture is, is that Scripture appears to show that this tribulation or this trial testing time could come at any minute, could happen at any time, okay? So the church, is, even back then, was supposed to look for the reality that a tribulation was coming, a trial was coming, okay? And it could be imminent at any time. Here it says these faithful Christians would be kept from it, all right? So it's an assuming that if you're faithful, then you will be kept from it. That might be a reference to 
the, tribu- the rapture happening before the tribulation period. Okay? I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think it's referring to that. Then you look over at Revelation chapter 6. Okay? Revelation 6, I believe the book of Revelation goes through chronologically as a whole. And if it's chronologically as a whole, then we're looking for things that are happening, things that will happen, and the things that he's already talked about at the beginning, rather. What is it? The end of chapter 3, right? It says, look at the end of chapter 3, rather. He says, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. No, no. Where is it, guys? Oh, it's the end of chapter 2. Sorry. Or end of chapter 1, rather. Sorry. 1. Chapter 1. It's hard when you're up here. Verse 19. Paul, or John, John gives a summary of the book. He says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, chapter 1, that those that are, those that are, that's chapters 2 and 3, the things that are during that period of time, and those that are to take place after this. Those are future things, okay? So chapter 1 are the things that he's seen. Chapter 2 and 3 are the things that are the churches then, those seven churches, and then the things that are going to happen after, future, are after that, which start in chapter 4, okay? So in chapter 4, you go up to heaven... John's taken up to heaven, and he's given a preview of what's to come. And chapter 6 appears to be the beginning of the tribulation. From chapter 6 on, you see no mention of the church at all. You see the mention of Israel again. 144,000 Jews are mentioned. Now, there is people that are converted during that, a multitude, but it doesn't say the word church. It doesn't have the concept of the church mentioned from chapter 16 on to 19. And a matter of fact, in chapter 6, I think the tribulation has started. Why do I think that the tribulation has started in chapter 6? Look at the end of chapter 6. The end of chapter 6. These judgments have already happened. The seals have started to open. And he says, they say in chapter 6, where is it? Verse 16, calling to the mountains and the rocks, follow us on us and hide us from the face of him who sits, is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So it appears that what's happened by this point? The wrath of the Lamb. So God is judging the world. The trials happened. Obviously, does Jesus pour out his wrath on his sheep? That would, make not, that would make very little sense. So I don't understand how the church is going to face the wrath of the Lamb. So I think, I believe, 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about the rapture, that we'll be caught up to be with Christ until this time is over. And then we will return with Him. That's the shortest and fastest I could go. Do you have anything you want to add? No, it's, it's in a way, it's a, it's a simple question. <laughs> yeah. The seven-year tribulation period for, and the church is rescued before that, and that's our, and that's our church's stance too. Um, now, there's different views, obviously, but I think the pre-tribulational view that Christ uh, rescues his church before the tribulation is 
the best uh, view biblically, but it's so not perfect. At this church, it's probably not going to be that big of a, that loaded of a question. Maybe in other contexts, it might start a fight. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if somebody if somebody comes to us and says, "No, I'm a post wrath rapture or pre wrath rapture person, or I'm a post trib rapture person," we're going to say, "You can't join our church." No, no. <laughs> We're not going to say that because these are these rapture views and when and all that is there's holes. It's not easy. This is very difficult. And this is after studying the book of Revelation for numerous years that I've come to this pretty solid commitment that I'm there. And again, I'm going to still love you if you're not there. Would you add anything? Yeah, First Thessalonians 5, 9 is just a concept, at least, in, within the context of the day of the Lord. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I we're think the concept is, you're right, but the wrath, are we going to face the wrath of the Lamb? Believers? Seems odd, you know? Right. That's rebellious. And again, I will, I will just say that that does not mean that we won't, we won't face tribulations and trials and difficulties, because we will. But yeah, but God's judgment. We have to define what the tribulation is. And if we define the tribulation as one... God bringing restoration back to Israel, which I think it is. I think based on Daniel 9 and, and Revelation 7 and 14, it's this, I think it's predominantly to restore Israel before his return. Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. This is that time for the restoration of Israel. If you say that, and second, that it's the wrath of God, a trial on the earth, then we have... The wrath paid for. Christ paid for our wrath. So why would we face the wrath of God? It, I just don't know how you put that together. Yeah. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, to give us encouragement. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Any follow up? Yeah, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and if if Revelation four, if Revelation four is after now, I'm going to show you what's to take place in the future. Then it's very. Very, if the 24 elders are representatives of the church and the Old Testament saints, if that's true or whatever, then, right, it would imply that we're in heaven or looking for this wrath for God to take back the earth, and, and that's why we'd, we'd go there. Yeah, good point. All right. Window, yeah. window on a question. Yeah, window.
Okay. <laughs> sure, ask it. Now it's, a, it's before the Tower of Babel, so he hasn't sent them yet, and I don't think it's talking about land being divided. I might be wrong, but I think it's just people groups being divided. So people become, uh, for lack of a better term, people groups, and I think that's what he's talking about, the divide, but that's just off the, yeah. It says it was divided. Yeah, the earth was divided. Yeah. To, yeah. 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 I, I think what MacArthur says is that it's looking ahead to what's going to happen after Babel in verse 11, or in chapter 11. So in other words, the division is going to take place. It's talking almost like when the people are given, then the division is going to happen. So this is the intent. We all agree that that was the intent of God is for us to spread out over the earth and, and take the whole earth. But the people did in rebellion. They said, no, we're going to stick together in, in rebellion to God. And so he changes the languages so that they have to spread out. So the intent was to divide. All right, we'll close with one last question. The the because this was an interesting question. What about this, David? Why did David pray in Psalm fifty one eleven? Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. How can the Holy Spirit taken be taken away from a believer, or can it? I, my take on that is I don't think the Old Testament. I personally don't think that there was the the Holy Spirit and dwelt believers in the Old Testament and dwelt them like in the New Testament era. He came upon people, like in First Corinthians. I'm sorry, First Samuel 16. Uh, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. He's he's he's, you know, being anointed, not anointed. Samuel's picked him to be the next king, but he's still a young guy, and Saul's still the king. Saul, but then it says the next verse or two after David, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him for from that day onward. It also says the Spirit of the Lord left Saul because Saul was messing up big time and disobeying God, and God was tired of all that and frustrated. Was, oh, not frustrated, but, you know, he was, uh, he was uh, judging Saul by removing the Holy Spirit from him. Well, he, you know, you don't, believers don't have the Holy Spirit taken. You're not dwelt by the Spirit, and then the Spirit leaves you. This is an Old Testament idea. And so I think that when David, David you know, got into sin, and uh, he, I think in Psalm 51, he's confessing his sin. And I think he's thinking, hey, I sinned grievously against God here. What if he takes his Holy Spirit from me that, you know, came upon me? And so he's concerned about that. And he prays, don't take your spirit from me because I really sinned big time here. That's I, what I think. Yeah, and I think he yeah. saw yeah. Saul. And somehow he yeah. must have known about this. That too. And says, I don't want 
It's the same thing that happened to Saul yeah. in my sin. You can yeah. judge me. Yeah, I think but so. we, as New Covenant believers, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, First, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. It's a down payment. We can't. So in the New Covenant, it's not possible for us to lose the Holy Spirit. Amen. Stephen, do you have anything you want to add? I think it's a solid answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I do. There was one last thing. When Jesus is talking about the new covenant relationship, he says, uh, the spirit is with you, but he will be in you. And it is pointing ahead to the Pentecost. So it, it appears very clearly that there is a change in the way that the spirit works within believers between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so it would make, very, it would make a lot of sense. For David to say that, but not us. We don't say, please, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from us, because that would be contradictory to a new covenant relationship with God, where he's, we're sealed. At the same time, we'd say, we don't need to worry about saying, Lord, please keep us from your wrath. Going back to the eschatology question, because why? He's taken all of our wrath, and we are right with him. So I think those things are new covenant relationships. Okay? And yeah, now John 14 through 16 um, are great chapters for the definitive mark of, okay, Jesus is praying to the Father that he'll send the Holy Spirit. So there is a definitive mark there in time where there is, there's an anticipation of a special coming of the Holy Spirit in a special way. That's right. That's true. We wouldn't even be able to tell. And you would think that you could lose your salvation very easy. That's a good parallel, Jimmy. That is a good parallel. All right. These are great questions. Hopefully we answered most of them. Uh, if you have any questions afterwards, you can come up and ask us. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Lord, we pray anything that we said that did not line up with your word. We pray that everybody will forget it and that we will uh, study more and learn more about you and everything that we got right that we'll take to heart and that we'll trust you and we will depend on you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives now. Use us, Lord, for your glory this week. We pray this in Jesus' name.